Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Dignified, solemn, almost, but not almost, reverential mood as people, and the numbers are really quite building strongly. You heard from Nick, you heard from Issa, both of whom are right in the middle of the Royal Mile and Princess Street. Mm-hmm. And now, through this outer suburbs, the procession makes its way. When it gets here to uh, the Palace of Holyrood House, it will be greeted by the bearers, who will then take the coffin inside the palace, where it will be taken to uh, the throne room yeah. to lay in rest. Well, we should remind people again of just how... See, these are aerials, right? These are helicopter shots at much of what you're looking at now. And, and these, this, this is line for miles and miles and miles of people. And then even where we are, there's to the right of us, there's a line of people. And we've been hearing, uh, you know, dogs barking. People are bringing intentionally, we're told, their animals here because the, the queen was such a dog lover. They're bringing their dogs and, and pets and um, just to get a glimpse into experience um, the day here. Uh, Nick Robertson is going to ju- jump in as soon as it gets close to him, but we are just a couple minutes out uh, in this procession. And uh, the, 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 the planning has been so far flawless. Yeah. It has gone exactly as intended. Um, and what will now happen is a series of complicated events with members of the royal family moving between Scotland and London. You're the Princess Royal who's already there in the second car there, the Bentley uh, behind along with uh, the minister from the church. And we will now start to see a choreography mm-hmm. of, uh, of military and ceremonial events that has to be done with military precision for the timings and for this. And you're going to see that in just about 15 minutes mm-hmm. when the uh, hearse arrives here at the palace. This is a trip that she took, you said, um, quite a lot. Uh, many, many times in her life she would fly um, to Balmoral and then drive back home to London. No, no, she, well, she, she would fly to Aberdeen but, uh, and then take the, the, to that tri- trip across, but she would also take the royal train. Right. And there, there had been a hope that the royal train could be used for this, but that wasn't possible. Yeah. Uh, let's get to um, our, our colleagues at Buckingham Palace, um, where there are uh, there's a crowd of people there that's been there really since the, the announcement uh, of, of the Queen's death. Um, Max Foster and Christiane Amanpour. Um, I, I would imagine that folks in the crowd are not paying attention to at least this part of her journey, but there's just an anticipation there of seeing her uh, as well as a new king, Max. Uh, yeah, so we're slightly behind schedule here. It was uh, due that the coffin would arrive at the castle, the palace rather, at 
four o'clock, but as Richard says, absolutely impeccable. Otherwise, everything is exactly as planned and signed off by the Queen. So this will be all very heartening to her. Uh, the people of Edinburgh have come out in huge numbers. Uh, I've been uh, hearing Issa describing the huge crowds there, which is also very heartening, I'm sure, to everyone involved in the royal family. And there will be, there's Princess Anne in the cortege there. There will be a member of the royal family at uh, the palace as well. It may be Princess Anne they're talking about there or someone else. And then you'll see the uh, cortege going up to the palace through the Abbey Strand Gate and then we'll see a very um, sort of sombre moment really with a, a royal salute as uh, the coffin's taken in uh, to the palace. Uh, there will be some pomp and ceremony once they get there but the main event really for this uh, will be tomorrow when we have uh, the coffin heading in procession to St Giles uh, Cathedral. Um, the Lord Chamberlain and the Dean of the Chapel Royal in Scotland uh, will be up there and they're going to oversee really this process because what you've got at the moment in this cortege is the members of staff really from Balmoral who are in charge of the coffin right now. They then hand over to the authorities uh, in Edinburgh. So this is just the level of complexity uh, you've got here. So many different agencies involved. It's quite incredible that it's working so smoothly. Uh, but it's the so solemnity, isn't it, really, of the occasion that's really striking the silence when this is such a busy area normally. Uh, Christian, you have covered um, a number of these. It's, sadly, I should say, because it's always a death of someone. But um, there's always angst. Um, there's always consternation. Um, and it is no different this time when you think about the magnitude of this. This, this feels quite different when you're talking about Her Majesty. Yeah, you know, I keep thinking today, based on, you know, all these people turning out for the Queen, I keep thinking of that, you know, major address she gave at 21 in which she pledged whether her life was long or short to devote it all to your service, talking about her people. And then she added, God help me make good my vow and God bless all of you who are willing to share in it. And I think that pretty much sums the whole last 70 years up. And all these people lining the route, we just saw the hearse pass with its you know, glass cover and you can see the coffin very, very clearly. They're lining in silent tribute. There have been, you know, throughout the day, some you know, outbursts of clapping, some tears we've seen, but by and large, a nation coming out simply to say, thank you, ma'am. And I think that's just what we're seeing today. It's a Sunday and early this morning on all the televisions and radios, there was a lot of, of conversation about the Queen's dedication to her own faith, the Christian faith. She is obviously the head of the, Cath of the keep saying that, of the Anglican Church, and now her son King Charles will take over. But interestingly, she made that a church that welcomed all other faiths, and she became known as an interfaith you know, champion really. And today, and in the days since her death, we've heard from the Jewish community, the Muslim community, um, Sikhs and Hindus, and, and many, many interfaith leaders who speak very fondly of how she would visit their churches, mosques, temples, and really show not just an interest, but, but a, a value of this multicultural Britain that has emerged uh, over her reign. Yeah. Right on, Christian. Listen, if there's any indication that uh, this is getting closer, is the helicopter. I'm not quite sure if you can hear it, and it m 
quite possibly is a helicopter that's bringing us these shots um, in Edinburgh. I want to get to our Nick Robertson. Nick, I would imagine that this is getting closer to you uh, as we are hearing the helicopter and seeing it overhead. Uh, what are you seeing there? Yeah, absolutely, Don. That helicopter just literally passed overhead and sort of watched it track its way from the fourth road bridge north of Edinburgh, come over here, over where we are uh, on uh, Princes Street, pass off uh, a line of police vehicles came through. I think the cortege must be getting close. We can't see it. But I don't know if you were able to see, Don, our camera here, but uh, as young sitting on the shoulders of a gentleman ahead of us and just to the right of her is the corner that uh, the cortege will come round and it'll pass in front of us here uh, and then take a tight right uh, just by the crowd where we're standing here uh, just echoing what uh, I was hearing from Christian there. I spoke spoke a few minutes ago to this 92-year-old lady and asked her what was why was she here today? Why was today special for her? And she'd been sitting out here in a chair um, at the railings waiting to get a view for the past several hours uh, with her daughter, with some of her grandchildren with her. And she said, oh, I remember seeing the Queen in 1977, 45 years ago. I said, well, what, what do you remember? She said, I remember her clothes, her dignity. But everyone you talk to here speaks reverentially about the Queen, about her service, about her duty. Uh, she gave so much to everyone here. And what you hear from people now is they're paying that back in their own little way, in their own special way, to be here to pay their respects as she passes by. She meant, means still so much to so many people. Now she will come round that corner. But as the cortege gets closer, you get that sense of expectation. You get the sense of the crowd getting a little quieter, of people waiting, waiting for that moment to watch her go exactly. by, Don. Exactly. I, I, I conveyed that just moments ago. You can feel it uh, here. And you asked if we can see you. Uh, you're coming in and out. And that is really indicative of what's happening here. There are so many people who are out here, so many people on their phones uh, and, and using the technology that um, uh, it's, it's basically not working. <laughs> it, it's hard to get service because of that. But you see the throngs of people, really. I mean, just lining uh, the streets here. Uh, it, it is. You're right. Um, there is a, a reverence that they that the people have of this queen. She uh, regal, right? You said to Christiane, uh, you said to Christiane a moment or two ago that uh, we, you know, this, this is the kind of thing we've not seen before. And the reality is, no, you, the reason you haven't seen it before, it's not happened before. It's not happened before. <laughs> right. not happened before. Uh, and I don't say that flippantly, but but. Modern technology means we can see it better. Um, And the size and scale is a reflection of the length of the reign and the love and affection with which she was held. And we will not see anything like this. And this is the beginning, Don. This is only the beginning. You wait till the funeral next week. This is the build-up. This is momentum uh, to the funeral. Um, Nick, I I do have to say I've I've noticed uh, there was an expectation of rain and so far, you know, don't want to jinx anything, it has held off. And we hope that it continues uh, to do that because that would mean a lot to the people who have uh, taken the time uh, to come out and, and, and see the Queen as she makes her, her final passage here. 
Don, I think you see all the all the phones here raised in the crowd. We just see the police outrider come through. I think that moment for everyone where we're standing is getting close, where they'll where they'll get their glimpse of the queen in the cortege as it passes by. It has been threatening rain. It, the rain has held off. I think everyone, as you say, is happy for that. But I do get that sense that even if it were tipping down with rain, Don, there will be a lot of people here. Mm. I, I think, you yeah. know, particularly in Scotland, maybe people are used to a good, a good drop of rain. Uh, but I don't think it would put people <laughs> off here today. These, these days, these important and special days, personally, to people, uh, don't come often like this. Here's another police outrider just coming around the corner where we are. No one quite knows which outrider is the one that's just in front of in front of the cortege. But the technology we're talking about, yeah, all the phones are raised here. Everyone's ready to record, ready, ready to have that piece of history in their hands when they go home. That maybe in 10 or 20 or 30 years they can be talking about that to the next generation of their memory of this moment of this day. Today it's still Robertson, not raining, and I think I everyone say, I, say is happy for that. I think that you have uh, the best assignment here as we watch uh, this motorcade get closer because you actually get a chance to get out there and talk to the people. Can you share with us uh, again what they're saying? I, no I noticed earlier you said that there were, was a child on her dad's shoulder or, um, and, uh, and just a multitude of people, different ages and ethnicities in the crowd. What are they saying to you? Oh, every, every, everyone is here. Um, I was just speaking to a young French student who's here at uh, studying at Edinburgh University. Uh, he's here with his friends. Uh, people uh, I was speaking to with a, with a gentleman from Tennessee earlier on. He just happens to be here in Edinburgh. But everyone, as you say, every age, the young children, the little girl we were talking to before whose parents had named her uh, after, after the Queen, uh, she was here. The lady I was talking to as well, 92 years old, who remembers seeing the Queen back in 1977. But what people are telling us is it's that sense of dignity that the Queen had, that sense of service, of commitment. And, and this is something that goes on in the background. It's not something that's in everyone's lives every day. But they're so aware, particularly at moments like this, of everything that the Queen means for the country and has done for the country. Um, that this has been a constant in their lives. And, and now that constant is transitioning to, to King Charles. But this sense that the Queen has given them something, given them something in their lives, given them constancy, given them support. And here now, the Queen in the cortege about to pass us by, the crowd gently clapping. And there goes. Queen's Coffin, Nick, let's listen. around the corner. In a moment, you'll see Edinburgh Castle. of applause there as the Queen passed by. There was silence before 
and then that applause. The police outriders going by. And at the end of it all, rather poignantly, as you've been saying, Don, that the Queen loved dogs and a little dog barking. Nick, thank you very much for that moment. Please stand by. I want to get now to Issa Suarez, who's also out in the crowd in Edinburgh. Um, and uh, what are you seeing where you are, Issa? Well, the mood has changed so much, John. I think you felt it too, and Richard did. I mean, I've been here since about 2 a.m. Eastern this morning, much more relaxed. But, of course, as we see that cortege coming in to Edinburgh, uh, we can, you could can almost hear a pin drop here. Uh, like Nick said, the phones are out. People are looking up to see if the helicopter is near. I've seen parents holding on to children. One lady said, I've got my handkerchief at the ready. Uh, she said, there will be tears. And it is incredibly respectful. It's solemn. It's somber. Uh, and, and so dignified uh, from across generations, may I add. Lots of young people, slightly older people. Everyone has something beautiful and positive to say about the Queen. One lady said that the Queen loved Scotland. She said she travelled from Glasgow and she said, I'm here to pay our respect. She served our country steadfastly uh, for, for 70 years. Uh, and others said, well, the least we could do, John, she told me, is to be here and pay our respect. Uh, I asked a couple of people what they thought about the new king, uh, King Charles III, and they all said uh, that he would be fantastic. He had a great apprenticeship, told me one lady. His mother was a queen, so she couldn't, he couldn't have had a better teacher. So, and what we keep hearing as I look at people who are holding their phones, waiting, of course, for that cortege to come down the Royal Mile is the word duty and service. And we need to, we need to be here to pay our respects. We need to be a part of history. This is something someone who's about 18 years of age telling me now. So what we're seeing now uh, on your screen is at really the top of the Royal Mile. Uh, you will, she'll be coming past me in the next probably two, three minutes. Of course, we have seen the cortege slow down uh, as it comes into Edinburgh. But it's such a, a poignant moment, of course, that, uh, that this is happening in many ways in Scotland, the country uh, that had a lifelong connection, I think it's fair to say, uh, with the Queen. She had, we knew she had a soft spot for Scotland, not just, of course, because of those ties of ancestry, but she had a deep love and deep affection for the countryside as well as, as people. And that, of course, uh, is being felt here as people reciprocate and show that love uh, today. I was speaking to police officer very close to where we are. We're just before St. Giles Cathedral. And, and now you're seeing it, Don. You're seeing the Cortez rounding the bend. Uh, coming up, rounding the bend, coming down shortly to, uh, to where I am, the Royal Mile. Of course, as we come in, Let's silence.
It's, it's now going past on St. Giles Cathedral, making its way, of course, to where you are, the Palace of Holyrood House, as you saw, silent here, and many people drying away their tears. Two people I saw through a couple of flowers, but you really could hear a pin drop as it passed St. Giles Cathedral, continuing on down the Royal Mile towards the Palace of Holyrood House, of course, the Royal Residence, and where the Queen uh, will lie in the throne room tonight before, of course, and, uh, moving on to uh, St. Charles Cathedral, John. And Issa, Issa, we want to listen, and we'll take it from here because it's getting closer to where we are, but uh, Richard, what a beautiful shot of the, um, of the beautiful it, coffin of Her Majesty. And you can hear the... Um, there's some excitement in the crowd here. But I just think it's, we should listen in. It's the right thing to do. I think it's, listen, we're going to dip in and out and speak here, but there's nothing that we can really add to the beauty and the, the reverence of this moment. The, the, the sheer number of people, the simplicity of the hearse with the coffin covered by the flag of Scotland because she was the Queen of Scotland and that simple white wreath of her, the Queen's favourite flowers. Uh, on top of it. Majestic is the words. Whatever you're feeling about um, anything, right? Whatever you're feeling about the monarchy or what have you, this is a, this is a stunning and beautiful moment. It is quite moving. And you, one can't help but be moved by this. The For a moment, um, we couldn't hear anything. But again, I think it's just appropriate to, uh, to, to take all of this in as they move through Edinburgh uh, on their way here to the Palace of Hollywood House. What what's, I think is also fascinating to just experience, these, um, these scenes will be replicated many times over the next few days because there is such an outpouring of emotion. Even where we are here, uh, a pen that... You're not even going to see anything from No one's moving. It has passed. And people are still standing. Because they want to wait. They want to wait. They want to wait. In respect. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, I to keep... Um, I want to harp on this, but I think that it, it is appropriate to talk about what is important to the people here, but how they knew their queen and they loved her so much, and they thought about what would she want and what would make her happy. And as we listen into these moments, and and we're silent here, we hear dogs barking. That warms my heart, because she so loved her animals, uh, and these the, the, her subjects know it, and they brought them out. And I love to hear the dogs barking I and yelping. And I know, You can see them in the pictures there. Yeah. We're now waiting for, of course, the final moment 
of when from the Royal Mile the procession will move towards the Palace of Holyrood House. This was where the Queen would spend at least a week every year as part of Scotland Week, where the royals would come here and have and conduct the business of royalty yeah. in this country. I'm looking over my shoulder because it's, I, I uh, hear uh, the siren and I would imagine the, the motorcade is getting closer and closer to us. I should say the procession uh, getting closer and closer to us. And, and folks are just standing about um, on their phones, not really talking. There's very little small talk going on here because they're just anticipating um, and waiting, Richard. And we you keep talking about how meticulously this has been planned, every single detail down to the very fine point. And it was, and not only that, it was reviewed and reviewed and rehearsed at all levels to make sure that it would happen. When I got here last night, they were practicing. I don't oh, know if you heard that. And they're practicing in London for later in the week, and they will actually do their runs at it to see to show the timings, and they will do it. But they, this was a detailed... And, of course, the same plan exists. God forbid we have to talk about it. The plan exists for Charles. The plan exists for William. They all, there is a plan in place for all the men, major members of the royal family and the government. This is also an enormous um, security undertaking as well which is nothing compared to what London will have to face, not to minimise what's happening here, but if you think about President Biden and all the world leaders who will be flying into London over the next week. Um, so hats off to the authorities. Let's stop. There it is. Here we go. Right behind us. Queen um, and her procession making their way to um, the palace of Holyrood House where she will um, be placed in the throne room and that will last until um, tomorrow. To, until tomorrow, tomorrow and then uh, she will be taken to Buckingham Palace to Westminster so what we would expect to see now is the coffin will be carried from the hearse by a military bearer party comprised of the Royal Regiment of Scotland. Let's listen.
As you can see with her every step of the way, uh, Princess Anne, Anne and her husband, um, and they will now enter the cathedral. And I can and see Sophie behind, and Edward as well. Yeah, there you have the Count and Countess of Wessex, Sophie, Prince Edward and Sophie, who of course were at Balmoral and have been there all week. And I understand that Andrew uh, is Prince Andrew's in the crowd as well. The Duke of York is present because they're all in Scotland and have been uh, since, since the passing. And the King will be in Scotland tomorrow for the procession that will take place from the palace to uh, St. Giles Cathedral. The, the King and Queen Consort will be arriving tomorrow for that. The coffin is now being borne into the palace at Holyrood House where it will lie in rest in the throne room. The cathedral, where it's going to lay in rest until, lie in rest until Tuesday, uh, and then it will travel by air to London and arrive tomorrow evening around eight o'clock. But as as punctual as they have been here, it will arrive exactly at at eight p.m., not around eight p.m. And then what happens on Wednesday is that the coffin is going to be moved from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Hall for lying in state there. That's going to end on the morning of the state funeral. CNN's Max Foster uh, joins us now live. He's at Buckingham Palace and watching all of this playing out here uh, in Edinburgh. Uh, quite a moment of majesty and reverence, Max. Yeah, so just to describe what's happening within the palace right now, the bearer party, we came coffin up the stairs, the great stairs as it's known, and the coffee will be carried administratively, as it's called, at the top of that great stair, the bearer party will adopt a ceremonial position. So there's lots of ceremony going on within the palace. And they're going to move into the throne room. And there the royal family, just mentioned who was there, to gathering with the Lord Chamberlain and the Dean of the Chapel, Royal Scotland. And they'll continue along the colonnade. They're going to go up the stairs and they're going to go to the morning drawing room, to the throne room, move to the south side of the room. And there'll be a, a short service there to obviously accept uh, the coffin into the castle there. And uh, the coffin will be on trestles. Um, they've already been pre-positioned within the palace. It's all very carefully organized. And then the bearer party will leave and there'll be prayers and they'll be said by the dean and the royal family will have their moment there. And then the royal family, I think, will withdraw because uh, the rest of this evening will be an opportunity for members of the palace of Holyrood uh, to pay their respects. Uh, to the Queen as one of the main households for the Queen. And then, of course, it's a case of waiting uh, for tomorrow when the King arrives and the Queen consort and they lead the procession to St. Giles. Christiana Mampour, this is, um, I, I, I think you can say this is the official beginning of the laying to rest of Her Majesty, but there is much more to come. We have days and days to go before her official funeral. Indeed, as they've been saying, as we've all been saying today, it's the first step of her final journey, and she has now come to rest for the moment here at the Palace of Holyrood House. I have to say that, you know, it was quite 
a moment to actually see her coffin borne by those eight pallbearers, because we did not see it as it came into the hearse uh, out of Balmoral. We saw it in the hearse, but to see it there so close, to see it, the reality, really. Um, her daughter, the Princess Royal, Princess Anne, has followed her every step of the way and was with her, we were told, um, at the moment of her passing. Her husband and, and her other sons uh, were there. And you can see from the overhead pictures, I mean, just simply the meticulous choreography and performance of this royal tradition. And it's something that the people of this country uh, can take comfort in because no matter how anachronistic it might look, kings and queens are the stuff of legend. They're the stuff of everyday culture. That's what Disney's all about. It's not as if kings and queens and romance and, 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 and reigns and royalty uh, are, are just reserved for, for, for Great Britain. It's something that really captures the imagination which is why so much of this is being televised. And again, so much of it televised for the very first time. Um, in addition, we're already hearing from members of foreign nations and foreign dignitaries who are getting prepared to come to the state funeral, which will be in just over a week uh, from now, Monday the 19th. We know that the Australian prime minister plans to come. The New Zealand prime minister says she's going to prioritize it. Uh, we have also heard that Pakistan, which is already under such duress itself with half the country underwater from these floods, is declaring a, a full day of mourning tomorrow, flags at, at half-mast. We know also that the president of China, Xi Jinping, has today reiterated not just his condolences on the death of the queen, which he did a few days ago, but reiterated his congratulations to King Charles II, hoping that they can work together. We've heard from the likes of the Irish dignitaries and leaders, the, 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 the head of Sinn Féin, who has said that the Queen was fundamental to an idea of a hand of friendship being reached across the aisle, someone who advanced peace and reconciliation, someone who sought to build relations with those of an Irish and those of a British identity. All of these tributes pouring in, and honestly, much more about, much less about the British monarchy than about the person of Queen Elizabeth II who most people would agree has, has stood out for her life of selfless dedication and her 70 years on the throne, her 96 years of life, in which now all, all the people, as we've seen, lining this route and who will continue to line it and who continue to turn up here outside Buckingham Palace um, just to say thank you and just to be part of this, of this transition. Royal historian Kate Williams joins us now. Kate, um, this is what you do. Put this into historical perspective for us. Well, Dawn, this is history, as you were saying. Such a moment of majesty and reverence, watching history, and just so moving to see all those people from across the generations turning out to say thank you for your dignity and grace. And she was working until the end, and this is her last royal engagement, the last journey that we've seen, this beautiful journey from Balmoral, the beloved home uh, bought by Queen Victoria, to Holyrood Palace, the home of her Scots ancestors for nearly a thousand years. And she actually used to use the apartments. We're just looking at the wonderful palace here where she is now at rest. She used to use the apartments of Mary, Queen of Scots, uh, for her entertaining. And it's so, the symbolism is so striking to me. She will rest here one night, go to St. Giles Cathedral, and she visited St. Giles Cathedral just after her coronation in 1953, 
receive the crown jewels of Scotland. There are separate crown jewels in Scotland and England. And uh, this, uh, you know, that was her moment, pledging dedication to Scotland. And this journey, to me, has symbolised her duty, her service, and also her life from the end in Balmoral to really reminding us of the beginning in Edinburgh in 1953, where she pledged herself to serve the country, to serve the realms, to serve the Commonwealth. And this, her final journey, her final journey of this great life, reminding us that she has been, I would, many, I would argue, many of us would argue, our greatest monarch who has come from such a long line of kings and queens. Yeah. Uh, Richard Quest, almost on cue. I mean, After the queen uh, we arrive. The, there's a sadness of the day. And <laughs> the rain. The, the, the weather is now reflecting it. From the morning bright sunshine of a day of a new era, and now we have the sadness of, uh, of mourning. And uh, so apologies for the umbrellas, but it being Scotland, there's not only rain, but it could be very heavy rain quite quickly. I think it's appropriate that it held out until she got here, and I, I, I don't mind it so much. I'm happy uh, for everyone, and I don't mean the journalists standing out here. I'm talking about the people who have been waiting for hours Absolutely. and hours and that they did not get poured on waiting for uh, their queen to arrive. So um, how fitting uh, that it were. I think it worked out perfectly. Right. That said... What a day. What a day, Don. What a day. Right, you are. What a day. Uh, our coverage is going to continue here on CNN. Uh, you're watching continuing coverage of the um, laying to rest, the beginning of that, for Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. We'll be right back. Welcome back live now to CNN's continuing coverage of Queen Elizabeth in the beginning of what is to be her final funeral on Tuesday. I want to get straight out to CNN's Issa Suarez, who's out on the streets and she's been able to speak to people. Issa, what are you hearing? so much, of course, what we all saw that was so moving is more than anything, I think you and Richard probably felt uh, felt it too. It, it was that feeling in your stomach, wasn't it? I mean, I think my producer and I were welling up as the cortege came past, and I think this is something that a lot of people have been feeling too. Very dignified, told me one lady. I'm joined here by two people who were watching the cortege, of course. Uh, I've got Andrew, who's 11, and his uncle, David. How did you, how did, how did you feel when you saw the Queen? Uh, yeah, it was definitely pretty cool and made me really think, like, kind of sad that, you know, she passed. Very yeah. sad that she passed. Yeah. How was, how, was it, how was it for you? What did you take away from that moment? What did it mean? I think there's something really moving about the fact that um, the Queen's body is making this slow progression through Scotland to Edinburgh, a place that was so important to her. Uh, and that so many people wanted to come and and see that um, and to see that happening, um, and I think that the the slow unfolding of that ceremony uh, does give a shape to people's personal sadnesses and personal personal feelings. And I, I know that there was a lot of people there today who felt themselves uh, welling up. Something extraordinary has has passed in our lifetime. Yeah, for so many of us, you know, we've only known one monarch, and that's Queen Elizabeth II. How, what is it you think, Andrew, I know you're 11, how was it 
about the Queen that you think so many people loved? Uh, she's just a good person, you know, she was always really joyous and happy and, you know, just a good person overall, I think. Yeah. Do you think, you think King Charles III, do you think he'll be able to match that? Yeah, yeah, probably. I mean, I don't really know, because cause I am only 11. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think you've got a good feeling, though. What about, what about yourself? Do you think you'll be able to, you'll be able to match what his mother has... It's a very, very hard act to, to follow, but he has a long t had a long time to prepare, and uh, I think everybody wishes him, wishes him well. And Don, what I've heard so much here throughout the day in the Royal Mile is that, you know, he had a good apprenticeship and she was a good teacher. Big shoes to fill, no doubt, but this, of course, being her moment, her last great journey, as King Charles III, of course, said. Back to you. All right, Issa, thank you uh, very much. Um, we're going to continue on our coverage here, but I want to send it back to my colleague, uh, Dana Bash in Washington, D.C. And Dana, I think the gentleman put it uh, appropriately as there. Something extraordinary has passed in our lifetime. That's so true. And just listening to your coverage with our colleagues, it's, it, it is overwhelming, even all the way here across the pond, as they say. Uh, I want to talk more about it with uh, my panel, who is here. And I want to start with uh, you, Hillary Fordwich. You are joining our panel. What are your thoughts as you watched the Queen's casket arrive at uh, at? Hollywood House, Hollywood House. Hollywood House. My first thoughts actually go to what is happening actually in Scotland, actually politically, that there was a movement to, and Nicola Sturgeon, the first minister, had talked about perhaps, you know, devolution and, and voting and having a referendum to leave. And you see the outpouring from the Scots. And let's remember that the Queen was more than half Scottish and her mother was Scottish. And I think what's wonderful, and Zaina said this best, one of your previous guests, I love the way she characterised it as the tapestry of humanity. When you see there the Scots coming out in such force, such force with such support and such affection, let's remember that the Queen, maybe she didn't know when her passing would be, but there were distinctive plans, Operation Unicorn, to be conducted from Balmoral. And I think what you're seeing is a great outpouring from the Scots that's reflective of her love for Scotland. Julia, you were, we were laughing, which I think, listen, this is a solemn moment, but when somebody is 96 years old, it's also time to celebrate an extraordinary life. You were laughing at what we were hearing as uh, the Queen's casket was going <laughs> along and making its way to, uh, to, uh, to Edinburgh. Well, firstly, I love that this is a family affair, that there are children there that are joining, that there are parents, there are older generations, and I think that's what transcended her. But... Um, special guests as well, pets, which we know <laughs> dogs in particular meant so much to the Queen. And we heard what, around half an hour ago that dog furiously barking. I, mm -hmm. I do feel in what we know of, um, of Queen Elizabeth that you know, she'll be looking down and, and smiling at, at the fact that she was being serenaded quite aggressively there by, um, by, by a barking dog. And, and her humour and her sense yes. of mischievousness. Yes. It's something that you've talked about. Yeah, well, I mean, we certainly saw it in the, um, in the video with Paddington. Mm -hmm. you, you, it, was, it was humanity and mischief. And I was remembering a really wonderful story <clears throat> that was told to me when she went to a um, birthday party for one of her oldest friends who was a bridesmaid in her wedding um, back several years ago. And on the way, she recounted this to the guests when she arrived. And she said she was driving through, she was being driven through Hyde Park and uh, a policeman pulled over her car. And as they sat there, 
a big limousine came by with a whole bunch of outriders. And as she walked in the party, she said, it must have been some terribly important ruler. (laughs) (laughs) That's a very good story. Okay, everybody, hold on. We have much more to talk about. We're going to sneak a quick break in. We're going to go back to Scotland as we look ahead to the next steps on the Queen's final journey and her royal funeral eight days from now. We're back now in Edinburgh, Scotland, along with my colleague, I'm Don Lemon, and along with my colleague, Richard Quest here. Richard, let's talk about what's happening now, because the Queen is being laid to rest here uh, at the palace yeah. of Holyrood House, and then there will be a procession to St. Giles tomorrow. Correct. So, t- so tonight there are prayers that are being said inside, and now members of the royal household in Scotland, of Balmoral, and where, of course, they were, they were able to pay their respects, but also here at... Holyrood House, the palace, all the people who worked for the Queen over many, many years, decades, are paying their respects. Tomorrow, King Charles flies to Scotland and we have the movement of the body from here to the cathedral where there will be another service and members of the public will be able to pay their respects. But here's the important thing. Smaller version. Tomorrow we're going to see a smaller version of the London procession because you're going to have the princes and i'm imagining since we've seen charles who'll be here we've seen andrew we know edward's here i would imagine that they will walk behind and, and, and we haven't seen harry here but we've seen them and they will walk behind the the the, the procession as it makes its way to the cathedral so it'll be a very solemn moment and a good a, a good introduction in a sense to what we're going to see in london next week and then the next day the body will be flown Back to London, first to Buckingham Palace. It'll, that's the first place it'll arrive, and then it'll be taken after that to Westminster Abbey. And at the briefing notes, we saw this picture of what it was like at the last time that the uh, coffin, uh, the state funeral was moved, and I don't think any of us have got any idea of the size and scale that it will be down as, the, as, as it proceeds through central London. It will then lie in state at Westminster Hall, mm-hmm. where the members of the public will be allowed to come in. And they haven't announced the full arrangements for that, but the sheer number of people, 200,000 people came to see Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother. Yeah. 200,000 people. 200,000. Yeah, and I think it's important a distinction here because it is laid to rest here and then she will lie in state in London. Yes, Uh, because that is the, the, the official lying in state. The catafalque with the crown... Flag will, will will be there, then, and then the morning of the funeral, it will proceed to Westminster Abbey. I, I can't begin to estimate how many people will turn up uh, for London, especially considering and, and the undertaking it is when you consider who all will be in London for these these services. I've got chills thinking about it, in the sense of they are the authorities are concerned that London literally will fill up and become dangerously full, but. It doesn't matter. In a sense, they'll cope in the same way that they'll cope with more world leaders arriving in a short period of time than perhaps we've ever seen. We will cope. It will happen. Will we see anything publicly this evening? No. No. no not This yet. is all. No. This is... It's time for you and me to, to, to sort of get out of the way. <laughs> Thank you, Richard Quest. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Uh, listen, I want to get back to my colleague uh, in Washington, Dana Bash. State of the Union will continue right after this break.
Remembering the Queen. After more than 70 years on the throne, the world honors Queen Elizabeth II, and the royal family opens a new chapter. I pray for the guidance and help of Almighty God. What was the monarch like one-on-one? My exclusive interview with Hillary Clinton and British Ambassador Dame Karen Pierce next. And Russian retreat. Ukrainian troops retake a strategic city and appear to open a new front in the battle. The main goal is deoccupation. Is this the beginning of a new phase? We'll ask Senate Intelligence Chairman Mark Warner ahead. Plus, two months and counting. The first votes are cast in the 2022 midterms as President Biden heads to the Midwest to make his case. Made in America is no longer just a slogan. It's happening. Are Americans buying the Biden economy? I'll speak exclusively to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Hello, I'm Dana Bash in Washington, where the state of our union is remembering at home and abroad. We begin in Great Britain, where Queen Elizabeth II just completed the first leg of her final journey through the United Kingdom. She traveled from Balmoral Castle and arrived in Edinburgh a short while ago with crowds of people paying their respects along the way, honoring the monarch who served them for more than 70 years. An honor guard welcoming the Queen's coffin at the palace of the Holyrood House where it will remain overnight. Her children, Princess Anne, Princes Andrew and Edward, on hand for this first stop as the coffin makes its way to London on an eventual path to Westminster Abbey for her funeral eight days from now. Meantime, here at home, another solemn day to remember. In New York, officials are still reading the names of nearly 3,000 people who lost their lives on 9-11 in that horrific attack 21 years ago today, honoring the victims who died at the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and in a field in Pennsylvania. Joining me now, former Secretary of State and First Lady Hillary Clinton. She was serving as U.S. Senator from New York on September 11, 2001. Madam Secretary, thank you so much for joining me. You say September 11 is indelibly etched in your mind. You flew over the smoldering wreckage of the World Trade Center in a helicopter after the attack. What's going through your mind today, 21 years later? Well, Dana, um, every uh, time we approach September 11th, I do think about everything that I saw, all the people that I met, the families of those who lost loved ones. So it is indelibly um, part of my uh, memories. And I feel grateful that um, we were able to come together as a country at that really terrible time. We put aside differences. I wish we could find ways of doing that again. We rebuilt New York. Uh, We have done our best to take care of the families that lost so much on that terrible day. And we have also, I think, been reminded um, about how important it is uh, to try to deal with extremism of any kind, uh, especially when it uses violence to try to achieve political and ideological uh, goals. So I'm one who thinks that uh, there are lessons still to be learned from what happened to us on 9-11 that we should be very aware of. Uh, during this time in our country and the world's history. You, you mentioned how 
the country came together. I actually want to play a clip of what you told CNN the night of September 11th, 2001. You were talking to John Carl. I was Capitol Hill producer with him at the time. Listen to what you said about President Bush. This was an attack on America, and the president of the United States is our president, and we will support him in whatever steps he deems necessary to take. We can't let uh, these evil acts in any way uh, deter us from you know, making it clear that the United States is resolute, and we are going to support the president. Just listening to that, it is such a striking reminder of how all of America's elected officials really genuinely put party aside and came together after those attacks. Would that be possible today? Well, I hope that it will be. And I give President Biden a lot of credit for trying to continue to reach out to people while still sounding the alarm about uh, the threats to our democracy. You know, I remember very well um, two days after I gave that interview being in the Oval Office with then President Bush, uh, who asked me what we needed. And I told him we needed $20 billion to rebuild New York. And he said, you've got it. And he was good to his word. And there were all kinds of political conversations about that, but he never wavered. And I wish now that people would come together behind President Biden, who is uh, doing an amazing job trying to rebuild our manufacturing sector, trying to deal with climate change, expand healthcare, and all the other things, including <laughs> trying to do something about gun violence, that the vast majority of Americans approve of. So we are in a funny position, uh, Dana, because there's a small but very vocal, very powerful, very determined minority uh, who wants to impose their views on all the rest of us. And uh, it's time for everybody, regardless of party, to say, no, that's not who we are as America. We are remembering Queen Elizabeth today. Most of us knew her from afar. You actually got to meet her personally. First as First Lady, you stayed with her later at Buckingham Palace when you were Secretary of State. You enjoyed her gardens with her. Can you tell us something about Queen Elizabeth that we wouldn't know, but you got to experience firsthand? Well, she was an engaging and lively conversationalist. She asked great questions. She was interested in what was going on um, in the United States, elsewhere in the world. Uh, another one of my favorite memories is when Bill and I stayed with uh, her and Prince Philip on uh, the Britannia, what used mm. to be the Royal Yacht, uh, as we commemorated uh, the 50th anniversary of D-Day. So we were in close quarters. Um, the Queen Mother was there. Uh, it was just like being with a, a family that uh, it was having a good time together, uh, despite uh, the solemnity of the occasion. And so in my uh, encounters with her, um, I admired her devotion to duty and her sense of obligation uh, to the people of her nation. And she was never wavering from uh, what she said when she first became a very young queen until literally two days before mm -hmm. she died when she received the incoming prime minister. But I also saw a more playful and uh, somewhat... Uh, you know, funny and uh, very incredibly warm uh, side of her as well. Well, the world just lost a female head of state who was on the throne for more than 70 years. She lived through 14 U.S. presidents, including your husband, as you mentioned, 15 British prime ministers, seven popes, 
In your private moments together, did you ever talk to her about what it's like to be a female leader? I, I can't say that I talked at any length. Um, sometimes there would be, uh, you know, a, a wry exchange um, <laughs> about, uh, you know, how uh, as a woman leader, you always had to have your hair done. And of course, she always looked perfect, uh, unlike some of us. Uh, she had a sense of style that really stayed with her. Uh, and so I, I knew that her sense of who she was and the role she played uh, literally governed her life from every second of it. And, you know, I heard an interesting statistic, uh, Dana, which is that nine out of 10 people alive in the world today were born after she became queen. Wow. So she not only lived through this period, but, you know, 90% of the people in the world had her as a symbol of a strong, uh, stalwart uh, woman leader. And yes, the, as she herself would say, uh, she didn't have the powers that the first Queen mm -hmm. Elizabeth did. <laughs> she had the, the role of uh, continuity and all of the presidents, all of the prime ministers, everyone that she met, I think saw that twinkle in her eye and maybe we're lucky enough to exchange uh, pleasantries that went beyond just the official uh, greetings. And that's how I felt. I felt very fortunate to see her in different settings over the you know, time that uh, I knew her as first lady and then secretary of state. You have a new show on Apple TV plus with your daughter, Chelsea, called Gutsy. It's about the stories of women you called household names and unsung heroes. Who do you think the gutsiest people in U.S. politics are right now? I think Nancy Pelosi <laughs> is the is the gutsiest uh, woman in politics right now because she has shown through all kinds of turmoil and challenge uh, what it means to somewhat like the queen to be uh, uh, drawing an analogy here. Get up every day, put on those high heels she wears, uh, suit up. Uh, to fight for the values uh, and ideals that she strongly believes in. And of course, our vice president, Kamala Harris, is someone who is breaking totally new ground. And I know that's not easy, having done a little of that myself. And she's doing it with, you know, good humor and a smile on her face, uh, despite the challenges that come with the role. So those are two that immediately come to mind. There are many others, both at the federal and the state and local levels, and I hope there are many more uh, because that's what I am continuing to work toward. While I have you, I want to ask about the FBI search at Mar-a-Lago. You said this week that you don't want to prejudge because you have been prejudged in your life. I know your infamous emails were investigated. You were cleared. But you've dealt with classified information as former secretary of state, as a senator. If the Justice Department decides that former President Donald Trump actually committed a crime, do you think he should be treated like any other citizen? Or should the, should the DOJ take into account the potential real-world consequences of indicting a former president and potential 2024 candidate? I think it's a really hard call, um, and I cannot uh, predict what the Justice Department will do at the end of its investigation. But I do think the rule of law holding people accountable is central to our nation. And 
both as uh, Secretary of State and as a private citizen. I have answered every question I've ever been asked. I've testified for 11 hours. I've you know, been involved in anything that uh, was asked of me to try to answer uh, any kind of uh, issue. I think that's the way the system is supposed to work, even if you are you know, not sure why uh, you're being uh, in, uh, with the spotlight on you. And therefore, I really believe that at the end of the day, no one is above the law and no one uh, should be uh, escaping accountability if indeed the facts and the evidence point to them having uh, done something that anyone else in our country would be investigated for and maybe even charged. So it sounds like you're saying that he should be treated like he were he would if he was Donald J. Trump, somebody who was a, a civilian, an average citizen, not a former president or potential candidate. I do, because, I mean, he's he's not the president and we do have some special uh, exceptions for someone actually in the office. Um, so I do think that uh, just like any American, if there is evidence, that evidence should be pursued. But I know it's not an easy call. And so I don't want to uh, inject, mm -hmm. you know, my uh, opinion into that difficult calculation because I don't know all the facts. And unlike people who uh, jump to uh, conclusions, I don't want to do that. But if the evidence proves uh, or seems to uh, show that there are charges that should be leveled, then uh, I think the rule of law should apply to anyone. Madam Secretary, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez gave an interview this week, and she was talking about how she feels conflicted when little girls tell her that they want to be president. She said, I never want to tell a little girl what she can't do. But she's seen how many people, quote, hate women. And sometimes she believes she lives in a country that would never let that happen. You got closer than any other woman uh, in this country to being president. What do you think? Well, I, I think it's sad that we have um, so many people who uh, uh, seem to either resent uh, or oppose uh, women in the public arena, whether it's politics and government or the media or anything else. Um, that's something we have to keep standing up against and speaking out against. And I, I think that uh, a woman will become our president uh, at some point, uh, I certainly understand all of the obstacles you have to overcome to get there. Uh, but I continue to tell young women and girls that if they feel motivated to pursue political uh, office, they should do so with their eyes wide open about how hard it is. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, social media, with all of its misogyny, uh, has made it um, more difficult. Uh, but we can't be bullied into uh, silence or giving up on our own dreams. We have to continue to pursue them and encourage others to do the same. Uh, well said. Thank you so much. I have to say that I am quite tired because I stayed up way too late binging your new show called Gutsy. It's, it's, really, it's really great. A lot of really interesting stories that you tell, including some about yourself that I never heard. So thank you again for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. We are just 58 days away from the crucial midterm elections. Can President Biden convince voters to look past 
Record inflation and see his party's latest economic wins. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is here next. Welcome back to State of the Union. The first early votes have officially been cast in the 2022 midterm elections with just over eight weeks to go. Poll after poll shows the economy is one of the top issues for voters right now, and the White House is taking notice. President Biden and top cabinet, official, cabinet officials are hitting the road in key battleground states, hoping to convince voters that despite high inflation, the Biden economy is working. Joining me to discuss is Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, who is just back from a trip to Michigan. Uh, thank you so much for joining me, Madam Secretary. On your trip to the Midwest this week, you said our plan has worked. A lot of people, as you know, are not feeling that way. A new poll shows not 62 percent, rather, of Americans think we're in a recession. Inflation is near a 40-year high. Wage growth is slowing. What do you say to Americans who say the Biden economy isn't working for us? So inflation is way too high, and it's essential that we bring it down. And that's something that Americans feel every day. And I think it's what's causing uh, them tremendous distress. And, of course, that is President Biden's, our administration's uh, top economic priority to do that. But um, we're not in a recession the labor market is exceptionally strong. The unemployment rate, extremely low. There are almost two job vacancies for every worker who's looking for a job. We've had an historically fast recovery of the labor market with um, around 10 million jobs created since President Biden took office. And um, of course, we've had shocks that the economy suffered, supply shocks, the impact of COVID, and very importantly, Russia's illegal uh, war against Ukraine that have driven up energy costs and food costs. But um, we have tried to address uh, that in the short run by uh, releases of oil from the Strategic Petroleum right. Reserve. Uh, gas prices have been coming down now um, for almost uh, the last three months. Uh, last month in July, uh, headline inflation was actually slightly negative. Well, and um, we, are, we are addressing inflation. Of course, the Fed plays well, a key role. Well, I want to ask you about exactly that. I want you to listen to what Senator Elizabeth Warren told me two weeks ago after Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell warned that Americans could face, quote, some pain as he continues to raise interest rates. What he calls some pain means putting people out of work, shutting down small businesses because the cost of, of uh, money goes up, because the interest rates go up. I'm very worried that the Fed is going to tip this economy into recession. Do you share her worry? Well, of course, it's a concern. Uh, the Fed is going to need great skill and also some good luck. 
to achieve what we sometimes call a soft landing, which is bringing inflation down while maintaining the strength of the labor market. And um, my hope, I believe there is a path to accomplishing that. And my hope is that we will achieve a soft landing, but Americans know that it's essential to bring inflation down. And over the longer run, we can't have a strong labor market without inflation under control. You said that there is not a recession currently. Are you worried that a recession could come? Is it still a threat? Well, it is a risk when um, the Fed is tightening monetary policy to address inflation. So it's certainly a risk that we're monitoring. And we're seeing some slowdown in growth, but that's natural because um, when President Biden took office, the economy was in a deep hole. Output and employment were well short of their normal and potential levels. We experienced, um, largely due to the American Rescue Plan, um, very rapid growth and um, jobs came back, uh, work, workers, um, you know, we, we faced yeah. something that could have been as, as serious sure. as the Great Depression. And with a 3.7% unemployment rate, that's a good, strong labor market. And people are seeing many opportunities and um, getting wage increases, yeah. now higher food and energy prices. Um, are having a negative impact, but we've got a good, strong labor market, and I believe it's possible to maintain that. And on the question of inflation, you know very well that the Fed is considering raising interest rates in order to address uh, what you admit is inflation that is too high. As Treasury Secretary, I understand you have to be careful not to tell the Fed what to do, but it sometimes seems like you're trying to relay a message, like when you and President Biden talk about, quote, not giving up the gains that the economy has made in the last two years. So do you want the Fed to take it easy on rate hikes? Well, I want the Fed to use their own best judgment. They're independent and um, they have a great expertise, proficiency in evaluating um, what it's going to take to bring inflation down, and we're going to leave them to use their own independent best judgment to try to accomplish that. I believe our goals are very well aligned. We want to see a strong labor market and inflation coming down to more normal levels. You talked about gas prices coming down, and last week you praised an agreement among G7 countries to finalize a price cap on Russian oil. Um, gas prices have actually yes. fallen about $1.40 from their peak. Some are worried, though, that they yes. could go back up in the winter. Should Americans be ready for that? Well, it's a risk, and it's a risk that um, we're working on the price cap to try to address. Um, this winter, uh, the European Union will uh, cease uh, for the most part, buying Russian oil. And in addition, they will ban the provision of services um, that enable Russia to ship oil by tanker. And it is possible that that could cause a spike in oil prices. Um, our price cap proposal is designed to both um, lower Russian revenues that they use to support their economy and fight this illegal war, 
um, while also maintaining Russian oil supplies mm -hmm. that will help to um, hold down global oil prices. So um, I believe this is something that can be essential, and it's something that we're trying to put in place to uh, avoid a future spike in oil prices. Before I let you go, just uh, one final quick question. More than 90,000 railroad workers in the U.S. are poised to go on strike uh, at the end of this coming week. The move could wreak havoc on supply chains that are already having uh, some issues. How likely is a strike and what should Americans be prepared for? Well, I know that the administration is, the White House is closely monitoring the negotiations and we certainly hope that they will be successful in avoiding a damaging supply shock to the economy. Let's hope so. Uh, Secretary Yellen, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dana. Thanks for having me. The Justice Department and Donald Trump's lawyers have officially submitted their picks for a special master to review the documents seized from Mar-a-Lago. Spoiler alert, they don't agree. The head of the Senate Intelligence Committee is here, Senator Mark Warner of Virginia. We'll speak next. Stay with us. Is this the beginning of a campaign to roll back the Russian invasion of February 24th? You know that our goal is to deoccupy our whole territory. The main goal is deoccupation. We just cannot allow Russia to continue the same occupation that they started back in 2014. Welcome back to State of the Union. That was Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. In an interview with Fareed Zakaria, you can watch that full interview at 1 p.m. The new comments come as Russia makes a major retreat. Ukrainian forces say they have taken back a key strategic city from the Russians after five months of occupation. And the Russian Defense Ministry is admitting that the decision was made to regroup troops. Joining me now is the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Democrat Mark Warner of Virginia, so what do you make of what the Ukrainians say, at least officials on the ground say, a flag being raised uh, in towns very close to the Russian border? The Ukrainian military claims that they severed a main artery for Russian forces. What are you hearing? What does the intelligence tell us? Well, Dana, what you're seeing is great gains by the Ukrainians. Part of that coming about because of the tremendous support from the United States and our NATO allies to make sure they get the military equipment they need. But part of that as well is coming about because of our, our intelligence community, working with the Ukrainians and our friends, the Brits in particular, have really kept the Russians a little bit, and Putin in particular, uh, on his back, back heel. So I think this kind of collaboration shows the strength of our combined military and intel, and uh, we all wish the Ukrainians well. Enough strength to signal a potential victory for Ukraine? Let's, let's, let's see how this plays out. Clearly, I think the Russians were expecting the counteroffensive mm -hmm. in the south, not in the northeast. And uh, the Ukrainians are demonstrating their will to fight. And that's one of the things you can never fully estimate, no matter how good your intelligence is. And candidly, the Russians' inability and, and lack of supplies to their troops is playing out as well. Let's talk about the uh, search and seizure of uh, documents at Mar-a-Lago last month. The FBI took, among the documents, 
They took 31 confidential, 54 secret, 18 top secret documents. You are the chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee. This happened over a month ago. You have still not been briefed on what they got. My committee, which I'm proud to say is the last fully bipartisan functioning well, first of all, committee. Do I have that right? You haven't been briefed? We have not been briefed. Why? We expect to be briefed. But one of the things that has happened has been when the judge in Florida off, uh, issued this mandate about a special master, there was a question whether the ODNI and the DOJ, even though they can continue the damage assessment, mm-hmm. can actually brief us. I think we'll get some clarity on that in the next couple of days, and we'll expect to get that briefing. But let's remember what's at stake. And I don't know what are, what's in these documents, but if these documents contain human intelligence, people's lives could be lost if that's exposed. If it signals intelligence, things that we've invested years of working on could be destroyed. If it's intelligence that comes from some of our allies, we talk about how we're working with the British in terms of supporting the Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. If that information that is shared amongst allies was somehow exposed in these documents, that's why getting to the bottom of this and making a damage assessment, the DOJ effort, that's, we don't have purview over that, but the damage yeah. assessment to our intelligence capabilities is critical that but we the have. The fact that your job as Senate Intelligence Chairman is to have oversight. That's the reason we have checks and balances is that one branch has oversight over another. And even before the special master situation, which is just in the past few days, why didn't you get a handle on what was potentially exposed in terms of the nation's top secrets? There were a lot of documents to be reviewed. Uh, I think the ODNI uh, and others were waiting for, frankly, the House and the Senate to come back and whether they just briefed the leadership or the so-called gang of eight. I think there was a little bit of a surprise with this uh, special master request. But as, as I've tried to point out, I mean, I think we need to trust the FBI. We need to trust the Justice Department. Uh, I may not agree with the special master, but I don't think we can pick and choose which part of our legal system we ought to support. So you we don't have any concerns the about the integrity of the investigation now that this Listen, I think special the, master or independent person has been I may not. Ag- I may not agree with that. But again, uh, I think all of us ought to take a deep breath and, frankly, um, not question legitimacy of the of these organizations like the Justice Department or some of this these comments against FBI agents. I think that's beyond the pale because mm-hmm. clearly we don't want to send these documents. But I said if it's human intelligence, signals intelligence, intelligence shared with our allies, if that was somehow not handled appropriately, the lesson you learn on the intelligence committee is you've got to keep this information secret. There's documents that I've had a chance to review where someone literally sits in the room with me and they take those documents then away. This is there's a reason why we have this well, on that, classification. On that note, I want you to listen to what the vice chairman of your committee, Marco Rubio, said about the search of the president's Mar-a-Lago home. This is really at its core a storage argument that they're making, right? They're arguing there are documents there. They don't deny that he should have access to those documents. I don't think a fight over storage of documents is worthy of what they've done. Is that what this is, just a storage argument? Listen. We have jointly made a request for this briefing of of damage assessment. Everyone on the Intelligence Committee realizes the importance of Why would he say it's just storage? Again, let's see what these documents are. Let's see how bad the damage could be if they had been inappropriately handled. Uh, I think this is an extraordinarily serious matter, and the process will play out. We've seen lots of press reports about what these documents might include, whether it's information about other world leaders or about nuclear powers. I don't think anyone would legitimately say that's not critically important information that needs to be guarded appropriately. Before I let you go, today is the 21st anniversary of the attack 
uh, of September 11, 2001, as the chairman of the Intelligence Committee, is America safe today? America is safer. But what I reflect on is that 21 years ago, I was in the middle of a political campaign. The attack happened, and suddenly the differences with my opponent seemed very minor. We were all Americans first and foremost. The only thing that gives me pause is 20 years later, uh, we, well, we've defeated the terrorists. It was literally insurrectionists attacking our capital on January 6th, trying to overturn a legitimate presidential election. It's, it's in many ways as if the aspirations of trying to take down the basic tenets of our democracy was being played out by, uh, by other forces now. And that is something that we all have to guard against. Senate Intelligence Chairman Mark Warner, thank you so much thank for you. coming in on this solemn morning. Appreciate it. An unexpected public display of unity from some of the Queen's own family members. You see it right there. Is this a new chapter for the royal family? That and the latest from the Queen's final journey after a quick break. Welcome back to State of the Union. You're looking at pictures of Queen Elizabeth's casket arriving in the Scottish capital this morning. It's just the beginning of a week-long final journey leading to her funeral. Joining me now is Sally Bedell-Smith, Julia Chatterley, and Hillary Fordwich. Thank you so much uh, for coming. We, we talked all morning about this, this dramatic uh, move through Scotland, a place that she loved. I want to talk about another dramatic moment, maybe so far the dramatic and surprising moment uh, since the Queen died, which is her grandsons, Harry and William, and their spouses showing up. There you go, outside, outside Windsor, and walking together, which they didn't say much, but they said a lot just with their action. What do you make of that? Well, I would say this, is that it was totally and utterly unexpected. The media actually that were there were just told that there would be somebody, somebody coming. They didn't realize who was going to be coming, and the crowds were absolutely shocked. It was interesting to hear the gasp in their, their um, right when Meghan went over, though, she went over to greet people, and you saw there was one woman who would not make eye contact. But not only that, a picture says a thousand words, right? Body language is everything. It was very interesting to see that the Duchess of Cambridge wasn't very close to her. I do think this is really important, though, a moment in history that obviously they're trying to step up for their grandmother's sake, a step of forgiveness. An olive branch had been extended to them to attend Balmoral with their children, with their, her, the, her grandchildren and all the great-grandchildren, which they had declined. But purportedly, it was a call and a command from the new King Charles to have Prince William make the phone call. I would say from looking at it, it remains to be seen how long this goes. And I do know there was a breaking of protocol from what was expected of Meghan. That will remain to be seen. I, I think it's good because we have to rise above in this moment. And this moment is about celebrating the life of the Queen. So there was clearly wild speculation over who made the decision, who called who. Did Prince Charles call William and say, hey, make that phone call to, to, to Harry to get them out there? This is not about them. This is about showing unity and caring about the Queen and showing respect for the Queen. So what comes next? Who knows? Um, but I'm glad as someone who openly would admit that my heart's there. My head may be here, but my heart is there. Um, I'm glad that, that all four of them together. And I pray, actually, that this is the moment, uh, a pivot moment where some good can come. I'm concerned, perhaps not. 
Put it, putting the past in, behind us. United in, in, I hope. in grief. Sally, can you just sort of take it up a few thousand feet and talk about this from a historical perspective, this moment in our world's history? Well, we're losing somebody who's absolutely irreplaceable, who's been part of our lives for 70 years as queen. And, um, and I think it's even taking a few days for it to sink in that she really is gone. And, um, and we're going to have a new, we have a new king, and we hope that he has a very successful reign. But everything she symbolized, her values, her work ethic, um, her um, absolute love for her, her country, for the Commonwealth, um, are really unmatchable. And, uh, and she presided over a period of time. She lived through World War II. She, she was a genuinely um, significant historic figure um, who may, in the fullness of time, be called Elizabeth the Great. Mm. Even though she didn't have overt power, she had um, enormous influence. And she set such a high standard, not only for her uh, subjects, but for people around the world, for all the values that she represented. A queen of hearts, I think, and of great heart. Yeah, and actually, yes, on, on the note of the hearts, um, it was actually former King Abdul who said that there will come a day, and this was um, years ago when George VI was alive, and he said there's going to come a day when there's only going to be four, uh, five kings, and they're going to yeah. be the king of hearts, clubs, spades. And he said, and the king of England, not realizing it be a queen. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely right. <laughs> and we've all it's funny how those. men sometimes make those uh, mistakes. <laughs> Thank you so much. And since the very first day CNN <sighs> came on the air, Bernie Shaw was there. We say farewell to one of our biggest role models here at CNN in news and in life. Stay with us. Before we go, my colleagues at State of the Union and I want to pay tribute to a member of CNN royalty, longtime anchor Bernard Shaw, who passed away this week at age 82. For 20 years, Bernie was the network's lead anchor, grounding CNN with his journalistic excellence and steady manner. That was never more on display than when he famously and courageously reported live from Baghdad during the first Gulf War. The skies over Baghdad have been illuminated. We're seeing bright flashes going off all over the sky. Bernie was a barrier breaker, one of the first black men to sit at a network anchor desk. He was one of CNN founder Ted Turner's first hires here and helped make this startup a juggernaut journalistically around the world. On a personal note, Bernie was the lead anchor when I joined CNN in 1993. I was fresh out of college. He was always kind to me and everyone else he worked with, no matter how junior we were. Here's what Bernie told us right here at CNN when he was about to retire in 2001. Through the years, I have believed that you, our viewers, need only reliable information and facts of relevance to know and to decide the truth. You don't need me telling you what I think is the truth. And many times, this journalistic hot seat rightly draws critical fire, as it should. We must have your scrutiny and be answerable. Why? Because you have placed in our keeping your trust. May you rest in peace, Bernie, and may your memory be a blessing. 
Thanks for spending your Sunday morning with us. Fareed Zakaria, GPS is next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.